0: Well, good morning uh, and welcome. Uh, It's great to be with you this morning. I'm so sorry that we are not able to be together in person. I really wanted to be together in person this week. Uh, You know, uh, when, when things like this happen in our lives, when things like this Happened in our city, I think it's wonderful to be able as much as possible to come together and to share stories and to you know see each other and to see how we 're doing and to see you know how all these the things are going um, but it 's not uh, actually safe in our building right now, so there are only a very few people in here this morning. We do have electricity, we do have water we simply don 't have water pressure feeding our fire sprinkler system. Um, And so that's not safe to bring, you know, kids and things like that into. And the few people that are in here, if the fire alarm goes off, will run that way uh, to the parking lot. But we'll keep you updated uh, as the week goes and uh, as things around the neighborhood kind of continue to get patched up and water pressure and different things. Looks like a lot of places around here are competing for a few resources. Uh, But we'll keep you up to date on that as we we go because we do want to get back together as soon as we possibly can. I do want to let you know one other thing before we launch into the sermon this morning is that if you would like to uh, help your brothers and sisters at Christ the King who need help financially during this time, you may do so. Uh, by making uh, a gift or gifts over and above your rather your regular tithes and offerings to our uh, winter storm relief fund um, so you can do that uh, through a designated gift that will be administered by our deacons for our congregation on financial needs that are a result of the winter storm and if there are funds left over from that uh, after the dust settles we can uh, distribute that also to our mission partners so If you want to write a check uh, to Christ the King, if you just put Winter Storm Fund in the note, that will get to the right place. Or if you go through our website and follow the giving prompts, there will be on the pull down menu uh, a fund that says Deacon Fund, uh, and you can also give to that as well uh, for particular relief administered through our deacons for the needs of our congregation um, at this time. So it's good to be able to look into the Lord's word uh, right now and to be encouraged by it. We are moving on from Ephesians 1 chapter, uh, verses 3 through 14 into Ephesians 1 uh, verses 15 through 23, which is a prayer. It's a thanksgiving that Paul gives to the church in Ephesus, but also to the church at large and to our church, and then a prayer for the church, his hope for us, God's hope for us. Through the pen and the words of the Apostle Paul. So if you have a Bible where you are, um, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Uh, The words will also be up on the screen. And so this is God's word For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you, Jesus, that you fill your church, that you rule over all things, and that you rule over our lives. And even as we come out of a week in our own state, and in our own city, uh, like last week, where so many things just felt so out of control, we know that you are not, either of the world or of our lives. And I pray that you would encourage us with that truth this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a really good friend who is a, a pastor in New Orleans. His name is Ray Kannada. He pastors a church called Redeemer there in New Orleans. And to say that Ray Kannada is a lover of the carnival season in New Orleans that culminates with Mardi Gras, which just passed uh, last week, actually, would be uh, an understatement. His house is actually on Magazine Street, and it lies on one of the main parade routes of the city. He's actually a part of a Mardi Gras crew that rides in these family-friendly parades. You know that a lot of the Mardi Gras parades are actually family-friendly. He rides in those during the day, you know, and just, you know, just the joyful, the celebratory atmosphere of New Orleans during Carnival is something that he really loves and values and treasures. It's really part of his, uh, his role as a kind of a parish pastor in Uptown, in New Orleans. But this year, of course, everything is completely different. This year, he has been texting me pictures and posting pictures of empty parade routes, uh, a vacant Canal Street, a totally empty Bourbon Street. There was no carnival in New Orleans this year, there's no Mardi Gras, there were empty streets, there were quiet streets, there were empty restaurants, none of the celebratory hustle and bustle that you would expect during this time of year. It's actually been pretty sad to see those pictures. It's a a reminder of what once was uh, but is not because of New Orleans, like pretty much everywhere else right now, is being dominated by COVID-19. And I think it would be tempting in a circumstance like that to, to be really depressed and to even possibly fall into despair, to simply just think only of the past, to be dominated by it, and then to come to a conclusion that nothing could be hopeful in the future. You know, it's just as tempting, I think, for us to live our lives dominated by the past in a different way. Maybe you are at a place this morning where you are just burdened by your past, where you're weighed down by it, where guilt and shame are really the overriding kind of, they're like the envelopes of your entire life. It's the operating system out of which you live, and if that's the operating system out of which you live, if you're burdened by guilt and shame of prior sins, you can easily come to the conclusion that nothing can get better, that there can be no hope in the future. That's an understandable temptation. But Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, building on what has gone before it, is actually all about hope. It's all about hope. Paul's prayer for the church, for you, for us together as a body, is future-oriented. But here's the beauty of it. It's future-oriented in a way that is also meant uh, to give us practical implications of how we live our lives right now. In other words, we live our lives in the present governed by the future hope that we have in Christ. And so the prayer of hope is this, that you may know God. That's Paul's prayer for you, that you may know God, that you may know God and lean into this knowledge and live your life out of this knowledge. Now the knowledge of God is spelled out in Paul's prayer for the church, And we see it under two headings. The first is the content of the prayer, and the second is the grounding of the prayer. The content of the prayer and the grounding of the prayer. So first, before we jump in, we need to define a a very key word here. What does the Apostle Paul mean when he says and prays that we would know God? What is the definition of the word know in verse 18, because we generally think about the word know uh, in 2021 as those who are informed by Western kind of enlightened rationalism. In other words, we think of know as only a cognitive act. To know something is only something that happens up here in your brain, like I know that two plus two equals four, or I know that Austin is the capital of Texas. But biblically, the word know takes on different facets. And you have to remember that the Apostle Paul, as he is writing, is formed primarily by the Hebrew Scriptures, what we would call now the Old Testament. He is more informed by the Hebrew Scriptures than he is Greek philosophy that would have been dominant at that time in the first century. And in the Hebrew Scriptures, to know means to have knowledge of experience and knowledge of understanding. To know means to have knowledge of experience and knowledge of understanding. So to know in the Hebrew sense is relational. It's not only rational. It's also actually wisdom. And so it's not only propositional or what theologians today might call systematic. So to know in the sense that Paul is calling us to know God is not either relational or rational. It is both relational and rational. And that gets us to our first point, the content of the prayer. As we've already seen, the main hope that is expressed in this passage is that you would know God and that you would know the truths about God's salvation in Christ, but then that you would lean into those truths and you would live your life informed by them. You would live your life out of them in deep intimacy with God. Now, there are three particular things that Paul points to here about knowing God, that if you embrace them, if you understand them, and then if you lean into them and trust them, and then you live your life out of them, will be utterly transformative in your life. The first is to know the hope to which God has called you. To know the hope to which God has called you. We see this in verse 18. I like to define hope as living in the present in light of the certainty of the future living in the present in light of the certainty of the future. So hope in the biblical sense is different from a mere wish. That's the way we usually use hope. Like it's, you know, pitchers and catchers have reported. That's awesome. And I hope the Astros win the World Series. Uh, you know, but but that's not a hope that is grounded in certainty. That's a wish. That's a desire. But it's different from biblical Hope. Biblical hope is grounded in all that is true about Christ, particularly those things that we're going to look at in a little bit more detail in just a minute when you talk about the ground of the prayer. But the point here is this. God has called you to hope. He has called you to hope. Your ability to live with faithfulness and consistency right now no matter what struggles and what pain and and, and just what you go through in your life is because God knew you first, drew you into relationship with him, and that allows you to know in the experiential way and the understanding way the hope that you have in him. The second piece is, of the content of this prayer is that you lean into and know the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints. This is also in verse 18 that you know the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, these are weighty and wonderful words. Your inheritance in the saints is the certain future that your past call in Christ guarantees for you. It is what Jesus has already inherited. It is what the saints, the holy ones, the ones who are you know, already saved by grace through faith in Christ, it's what they have already inherited before you. It's the exact same inheritance Christ himself has and other believers who have gone before you have. So the certainty of the future is that you are going to inherit what Jesus has already inherited and all who have followed before you in Christ have inherited. That's a beautiful and a weighty thing. That's what we can look at. That's the certainty of the future that we know is coming that cannot be taken away from us that then serves to help us to live with faithfulness in our lives right now. You know, One of the very small blessings that I count in my life is that I got engaged to Shannon well over 20 years ago, back in the 90s when things were simple. Do y'all remember, some of you may remember when the only thing that was required for you to get engaged, a man to get engaged to a woman was to find a nice quiet spot somewhere, get down on one knee, you know, maybe if, if, you, if you were able to afford it, to have a ring and to place the ring on her finger and to ask her to marry you. Those were simple days, right? Those were the days before social media. Now, it's a production. I pity people who are getting engaged right now. It's way too stressful, way too much thought. you got to get a photographer and hide them behind a tree somewhere. You fly your friends in. Your friends and your family are all hiding behind bushes. you got social media to worry about. You do the engagement. Everybody's taking pictures. There's a secret video. People are rushing in from behind trees to celebrate. Whew. That seems difficult to me, so I'm thankful. I'm thankful that all for it took for me was a front porch in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and a nice day in November to get engaged. Um, but, no matter how you do it, whether it's the simple old days or the more complicated new days, to get engaged is to be pledged. To get engaged, you are pledged to be married. Now, you are not yet married. You don't have all of the benefits yet of what it means to actually have made vows and to be married. That's a fact that I find it necessary often to remind couples when I do premarital counseling. But you have the promise of marriage. And in an engagement ring, you have a visible reminder of a future event that you are pledged to. A wedding day. And when you are engaged to be married, you spend your days Living expectantly, right? Longing, hoping for that day to hasten and to come soon. You spend your days preparing for it. You spend your days getting ready for not only the marriage but also for the wedding. You live longingly. You live expectantly. And that is how we are called to live as followers of Jesus. The wedding feast of the Lamb, the inheritance of the saints, is guaranteed for all of those who God has called in Jesus Christ. And so now, how do we live? We live expectantly. We live in preparation for that day. We live in intimacy with God. We live serving Him. We live serving His people. We live serving the world. We live longing for that day and praying that it will come soon that is how God calls, that's that's living in hope, living in the present in light of the certainty of the future. So let's concretize this just a bit. What would it mean in your life right now for you to live today, this very day, in light of a future certainty that you have an inheritance of eternal life with Christ and with the saints? Well, let's just think about the reasons in our lives that we get angry. Some of those is because we are selfish people and we just get angry, but sometimes we get angry because people actually hurt us, right? People do wrong things toward us. Maybe people lie about us. Maybe people gossip against us. Maybe people say things that are not true about us. And that true, that, 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 that false narrative begins to take hold. And one desire in those instances is for us not to just uh, have justice play out, right? One of our desires in those kinds of instances is retribution. Oftentimes in our heart, when somebody hurts us, what we really want to do is we want to figure out a way to make somebody else feel the way that we feel. We want to make the perpetrator feel what we're feeling right now. But how does, in just this one instance, how does living our lives in the presence in light of the certainty of the future instruct us on how to live in our hurt and in our anger? Well, the certain future is this, that God alone is the perfect judge, God alone meets out perfect justice. God alone knows what is in any human heart, and he will judge. He promises to judge. He promises to destroy evil and, and and all of the works of evil. This is why Jesus can be radically countercultural and radically counterintuitive in the Sermon on the Mount when he says crazy things. Like love your enemies, bless those who persecute you, bless them, do not curse them, and pray for them. You see, God knows the heart. God is the judge, and with that as the backdrop of certainty, we live lives now of radical love, radical mercy, grace, forgiveness, things that open us up in vulnerability even in the present so, living in the present in light of our certain inheritance helps us make sense of almost all of the biblical teaching that seems crazy to us, right? Certainly countercultural, like radical generosity, the light, the, the certain futures that you're going to inherit all things in Christ. The things of this earth don't matter really as much as we think that they do. Or the sexual ethics of the Bible that prioritize love of others rather than fulfillment of self-centered desires. Those things are informed by the certainty of the future. The final piece of the content of the prayer is that you would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power. That you would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power. Now, there's a word that's taken on some significant meaning this week, right? Power. You You can't turn around and not hear the word power right now. And, you know, Now you probably know what it means to have it and what your life looks like without it. Well, the power that was lost on the electrical grid was measurable, so think about that. It was super significant, but it was actually measurable. And it is nothing compared to the immeasurable greatness of God's power. God's power is all power, the power to create the universe out of nothing. And you can know this, Paul says, Think about that for a second. You can know this power, not only in your head, but relationally. You can experience the power of God in your life. And your experience of this power is what Paul starts detailing in chapter 2 when he talks about being dead in sins and being made alive in Christ. It's the power of God to take you who are dead and utterly helpless and without hope and give you life in Christ. You know that power. You experience that power through faith in Christ alone. You know, last week was a hard week. Uh, and I think that a lot of people right now are, I mean, we're just sort of starting to pick up some of those pieces. I know a lot of you who are, you know, here this morning virtually, are, including, you know, our own family, still have work to do. We still have things to get repaired in our own house. And then there's going to be the inevitable politicized battle about what happened to the electric grid. And you're going to add to that to the fact that we are coming up now pretty quickly on the one-year anniversary when we sort of stopped kind of normal life at Christ the King due to COVID-19. You have a recipe there for high anxiety, right? I feel it. High anxiety. Depression could be even morphing into despair, very serious um, emotional and psychological consequences of all of these things. This is exactly the time, I think, that it is important for us to lean into the knowledge of the power of God. This is exactly for the time for us to remember that God is not weak, that God is not asleep at any switch. He's not asleep at the switch of the universe or the switch of your life. And one of the best ways to lean into that power is to remember what God has done for you in the past. You experience, you you tangibly experience the power of God in present anxious circumstances through thanksgiving and remembering the work of God in your life. For For example, very simply, I'm very thankful I'm very thankful that I have a gas stove and a gas fireplace, small things you know I, I thought you know when, when when the Lord provided that house for us, but He provided those two things for us to get through nights without electricity and blankets and and bottled water and and shelter you know to know um, that 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 these things are provisions of God, but also to know that that this temporary hardship, which is real and not to be made light of, it's very real and very significant and and super significant for a lot of people, it also actually doesn't compare to the glorious inheritance that is certain and sure and held out for us in Christ. That's what allows us to persevere in these really difficult times. And that's what actually allows us to serve, as, as Taylor was already talking about, to be good neighbors, to be to, 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 to be knit together as the body of Christ, to serve one another, to share our possessions as they did in, you know, in the early church in Acts, to give people what was in our pantries and in our closets you know, even at this time because we know the power of God. But here's the question leading to our next point. How can we trust that? How can we actually trust that inheritance? How do we know that that's going to happen? How do we know that God is really powerful? How do we, how do we know that this isn't all just a bunch of made-up stuff that is just kind of there to make people feel a little bit better in the hard, difficult times of life? Well, that gets to the ground of the prayer. You can fully trust in all of these things. Hope in the knowledge of God, your glorious inheritance with the saints, the immeasurable greatness of God's power, because God has already demonstrated all of those things in Jesus. And He's done it through Jesus' exaltation and His headship. God demonstrates His power in the exaltation of Jesus. The exaltation of Jesus has two parts to it. We see both of them in verse 20. First, God raised him from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, stop for just a second and and kind of focus. Laser beam here for just a second because this is important. If the bodily resurrection of Jesus did not happen on the third day, according to the scriptures, then God is a liar. The Bible's not true, none of it. And it is not to be trusted. And his power, God's power, is an empty claim with absolutely no basis of truth whatsoever. All trust in Christ hinges on an historical event Either Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day after he died on the cross, demonstrating and proving the power of God that gives you new spiritual life and guarantees your glorious inheritance in the future, or he did not. Making our faith futile, or as Paul says in another one of his letters, the, most, the people most in the world to be pitied. People who would believe in a lie like that, did he do it? Did God raise Jesus from the dead? I've committed my life to the belief that he has and did, and that that is real, and that that is a ground of our faith and our trust in Jesus, even during the most dark and the most difficult times in our life. The exaltation of Jesus through the resurrection of the dead and second that God seated Jesus at at his right hand. Verse 20 says, God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now, this is metaphorical in the sense that the right hand of God is the seat of rule. The risen and ascended Jesus now rules over all of this creation as the exalted one. Verse 22, God put all things under his feet, the earth itself. The universe itself is the footstool of Jesus. He is that glorified. He is that exalted. But he's also loving and gracious because God demonstrates his power in Jesus' headship. Verse 22, he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's actually a mouthful. There's actually a lot of pages of commentary that go into what that verse right there means, um, a a lot. But essentially, what I think Paul is getting at here is this, is that the church, which is in this uh, scenario defined as all of God's people in all of God's places throughout all of time, exists because of Jesus, It is also filled and made complete and ruled over by Jesus. The church exists because of Jesus. It is also filled by Jesus. It is made complete by Jesus. And it's ruled over by Jesus. Jesus is among us. He is filling us up. He is knitting us together. He's empowering us for the mission of carrying the knowledge of God through Christ to our city and to the world. He's leading us as his head. He's the head of the church. I'm not the head of the church. Our session is not the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. And this is one of the reasons why this last year has been so disorienting. This is one of the reasons why this last year in the church as a whole, but also in this particular church, has been so disorienting and painful and hard. Actually, symbolically, symbolized by our time right now where we're all scattered to the four winds, you know, trying to worship together wherever it is that we may be. You see, Jesus knits his church together by his spirit, meaning that you and I are connected, spiritually speaking, to all others around the world who are fellow believers in Christ. And The, the, truth, of that, the truth of that is actually this, that if you're a Christian, you are more connected you, are, you have more things in common ultimately with a person who lives on the other side of the world who is completely different from you, who is a different race, who is, a, you know, is you know, a different sex, who is different in every way from you, yet is a fellow believer in Jesus Christ than you have with your next-door neighbor whose kids go to your kid's school and they play on your sports teams and you're in all the same clubs but is an unbeliever. Ultimately, you have more in common with that other person than you do with your neighbor But here's the thing, the universal, so this is spiritual and universal, but the universal knitting together of the church is concretized, and it is made visible, and it is made tangible in the local church, something akin to Christ the King Presbyterian Church, to use a New Testament word, the ecclesia, which can be loosely translated as gathering, becoming together. The literal disembodiment of the church over the last years carries profound difficulties. It also carries opportunities, and I want to talk about that too. But I don't want to dismiss the difficulties. I don't want to dismiss the pain. I don't want to dismiss the, uh, the, 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 the spiritual uh, deprivation that we have experienced, not just us, but a lot of people, you know, most of the church in, in the world over the past year. Because you can very much feel right now like you're going it alone in your spiritual life. That can cause you pain. Or you can also f- begin to feel like you like to go it alone, right? That... That the church through live stream and the church through Zoom has kind of, in some ways, made it easy to sort of take the parts that you want from the church and leave behind the messy parts. And generally speaking, the messy parts of the church are always relational. So you know, it's possible that we don't have to do the messy part of church. You know, um, and what and when what is designed to be a gathering only becomes a scattering there will be consequences in our spiritual lives. There will be, which is why doing everything that we can do right now to tap into those opportunities that we have to be in community with fellow church members is so vital, particularly now. There are real difficulties, but there are also opportunities. And because I don't want to, I don't want to, I think the one thing that would be wrong for us to do is to say, this is unprecedented. You know, almost, the the world's been around a long time. Almost nothing is unprecedented. Um, I mean, maybe what happened last week in Texas was pretty unprecedented. But in church history, the church has been scattered before. This isn't the first time, this isn't the first plague. From persecution in Jerusalem in AD 70 to plagues all over Western Europe to immigration to missionary movements, the church is never static. The church has never been satisfied with only gathering. That's like being the Dead Sea. You know, that's where just, you know, you know salt and, and crud builds up, you know, and, and nothing moves and nothing lives. The church gathers, the church comes in to go out. We gather for the specific purpose of being equipped and encouraged to scatter about the city on purpose for the life of the world, not only for our comfort and ease, to be the hands and the feet of Jesus, to make disciples of all nations, to bring the good news of life in Christ to those who are perishing. So in many ways, in many ways, we're not completely whole as the church unless we gather because the invisible knitting together of Christ's church must be made visible through our presence with one another. That doesn't just mean here on Silver Road. That means other ways that we can do that in our neighborhoods and in our parishes, you know, and to even you know, electronically if that's what you need to do. But we need to commit to praying every single day that the Lord will hasten the day that the Lord will hasten the day when we can be together. But here's the thing. We are also not whole unless we scatter. Unless we scatter into whatever spheres of influence the Lord has placed you in with the express purpose of representing Jesus there. This is how we live in the presence in light of the certainty of the future. It's how we express hope and how we spread hope. My friend in New Orleans has been expressing hope with respect to his city. What happened in New Orleans this year was that the neighborhoods that were on the parade routes, uh, even though they couldn't have the parades, they couldn't decorate floats and all those kinds of things. So what they did, and the houses that were in the neighborhoods that were on the old parade routes, they made their houses into Mardi Gras floats. They turned them into floats. They decorated them. Even to the extent of where the, where, where the family members of those houses would stand on their front porch and they would throw beads to people who were walking by or people who were, you know, you know, riding bikes by their house and things like that. Of course, this was not the carnival of the past, but it did express hope, right? It expressed hope that there would be future carnival in that city and the residents there have been living in present, in light of that future hope. That's God's hope for you, that you would know, that you would know the hope that you have in Christ, that you would know the riches of the glorious inheritance that is yours in Christ Jesus, that you would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power, all demonstrated, all proven, all made secure by the exaltation and the headship. Of Jesus, so my question in parting for you is this: Do you know God? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your exaltation. We thank you for your leadership and your headship of your church. We do pray, Lord at Jesus, that we would live our lives now in the presence, in light of the certainty of the future that you hold out for us with you, Lord Jesus, and with the saints who have gone before us. We ask it in your name. Amen.